you're not guaranteed any after that. But uh, the older you get, hopefully the wiser you get and the more you, you're able to discern uh, more about what's important, more about what's more important, more about what's not important at all and, and how to eliminate some of those things from your life, you know, and, and uh, there, there's so many things that, that we focus on often, even as Christians, that are just not important. Not, not that they, you know, they don't matter. Or what, they're, just, they're, they're less important than, than, than the more important things. And I know that's just that's a very, very simple thing, but hopefully you'll understand uh, what I mean by that as we go through here this morning. But I just, let me start here in Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll pick up reading in verse number 14. It says this, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Now, one of the, one of the most difficult things to do in our lives, uh, just, just in general, but obviously we're focusing on our spiritual lives this morning, but one of the most difficult things to do is eliminate good things so that we can focus on the best things. Good things are good things, right? There's nothing wrong with them. But sometimes good gets in the way of the best. And if, if, if good is getting in the way of the best, then that good needs to go. And we need, to, we need to, to give way to the best. In the end, what really matters is our divinely ordered priorities. And so this is like a shotgun message this morning, I guess. I have a lot of different things to give you. I'm going to shoot it out there and let it, let it fall where it may. I, I would even suggest taking some notes this morning and uh, um, using it as a guide for your devotions this week or just some things to meditate on. What I want to preach to you about this morning is seven things that are more important. Seven things that are more important. And we're going to look at this passage. We'll look at a couple others this morning. But before we do that, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us this morning in what I say and how we listen. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. I thank you for an opportunity we have to be in your house. I pray that you would... Uh, give me wisdom in the, in the words to say this morning. I pray that you'd help us as we listen, at, that you would uh, uh, help us to, to, to realize the things that are most important. And if there is some things that we need to move around or change or do differently in our lives so that we can have a better relationship with you, so that we can move closer to you, so that we can be better witnesses for you, whatever it is, God, I pray that you would just uh, use the message in our hearts this morning. I pray that the, that the Holy Spirit would convict us and that we'd be willing to change those things that you want us to change. We'd be willing to tweak the things that we need to tweak. God, I pray that you just use it this morning in only the way that you can. Thank you again for all you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want you to see is this. We need to be more concerned with planning. Be more concerned with prayer than planning. Uh, is planning a bad thing? No, planning's not a bad thing at all. Planning's a good thing. But that's what I'm saying. Sometimes we get so focused on good things that we miss the best. That's what the, that's what the whole point of this is going to be this morning. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 17 says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. And he goes on. We've already read that. But I'm a planner by nature. And I know, some, you know, 
uh, a, a lot of us are. I like to plan. I like to know what's coming. I like to be prepared. I like to, I like to have things laid out ahead of time. Yet far too often what I find myself doing is making plans and then God asking God to bless those plans after I've already made them. Essentially what I do is I, I have a whole piece of paper with all of these things on it and I slide it over there across the desk and I say, God, please sign that so I can tell everybody this is what you want us to do. Or God, please, please put your stamp of approval on this so that I, that, that I can know that we're doing the right thing. When essentially what God wants us to do is to take a blank piece of paper, put our signature at the bottom of it, and slide it across and say, God, please, fill in the details. You tell me what you want me to do, and I'll be glad to do it. That's what doing the will of God is. As we pray, we begin to find what he wants us to do. And that's why I'm saying we have to be more concerned with prayer than we are with planning. Uh, I, in the last few months, God's really burdened m- m- me to pray more and to pray bigger. It's not that I pray, I do. But sometimes our lack of faith gets in the way of praying the big prayers that God us to pray. Right? So often we think, well, that's not possible, so let me ask for something a little bit less than that. Well, that's, that's a little bit far-stretched. Let me ask for something that's a little bit more in the realm of possible. God doesn't operate in the realm of possible. He operates in the realm of the impossible and in the miracles. Right? I, I, I want to pray big prayers that only God can answer. I don't, I don't want God to just give us money to keep the lights on in this building. I want him to give us the city. Right? We, what, a, what, a, what a great opportunity we have to reach this world for Jesus Christ. I don't want to keep the lights on and keep things going. I, w- I want to be able to reach the city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? I'm not asking for just a little spot that we can afford. I want him to give us a piece of property that is far beyond what we can even ask or think. That will be good for now and be good 20 years from now. But that takes big prayers, especially when you're talking about millions of dollars. Right? But God can do it. And God wants to do it. I think God delights to operate in the realm of the impossible. He delights to hear his children ask him for things that there's no possible unless he does it. That's, the way, that's where God likes to operate. And he can do those things. But you, do you believe it? Do you believe that God can do that? Maybe you have some things in your life that seem insurmountable, seem to, seem to be things that there's no possible way that, that's, that that could happen. And if I start praying that thing, I mean, the only way that that's possible is if, that, if a miracle happens. What's wrong with that? Do you think God can't do miracles? Look at all the miracles we read about in the Bible, all the way through the New Testament, even in the Old Testament. I mean, the, the entire Bible is filled with things that are far beyond the realm of the possible. It's still the same God today that he was yesterday. Hebrews tells us Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. He hasn't changed. We, we're the ones that have changed. We've stopped believing that God can do it. That's why he doesn't do it as, as often as he used to do, I believe. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Uh, you know, it's, it's not that God just said he, he's able to do what we think he can do. Or he's able to do abundantly above what you think he can do. He said exceeding abundantly. Now those words are coming from God. Could you imagine what exceeding abundantly means to God? We, we operate in the realm of the, of the possible. He operates in the realm of the impossible. Prayer is the greatest preparation of all. You ought to pray before you plan. You ought to pray as you plan. You ought to put, pray over those plans after you put them all together. You remember the story of Joshua? I won't have you turn there, but in Joshua chapter 9, they were going up to take the little tiny city of Ai. So small, so, so out of the way, so, such a nothing little place that we don't need to pray and ask God what he wants us to do. Let's just go take it. And, and Joshua chapter 9 and verse 14 says that. They, didn't, they did not ask God what he wanted them to do first. They just went up there and did it. 
If they had asked God, God would have told Joshua, hey, there's sin in the camp. You're going to lose men. You need to get this taken care of before you head up. But they didn't. They headed out to Ai. Sure enough, men died. They lost the battle to this tiny little city. And then they came back and started asking God, hey, what, what happened? Why did, why did these things not go the way we planned? God said, you didn't ask me first. You didn't talk to me first. We need to make sure that we are more concerned with praying than planning. God's way is always best. His plan is always best. Number two, be more concerned with the Holy Spirit's promptings than with organizational ability. Be more concerned with the Holy Spirit's prompting than with organizational ability. Chapter 3 and verse number 16 says that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Verse 19, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Again, organization is fine. Nothing wrong with that at all. It's a good thing, but sometimes uh, it gets in the way of the best thing. Organization is nothing in comparison with the power of the Holy Spirit in what we're doing. You see, we have to remember that Christ Church is not an organization. It's an organism. It's alive. It's not just something that, we're, that we show up and we say, all right, we, we'll put a pastor at the top, and we'll put some assistant pastors, and we'll put some deacons, and we'll put people in heads of the ministries, and this thing's just going to take off because we're organized. We're ready to go. Oh, the Holy Spirit has to do the work. An organization cannot take the place of the Holy Spirit's prompting in our, in our lives, in our ministry, in this church, in anything that we do. I think one of the greatest things that ever happened to me was when we, when we were getting started in this, this church, and most of you are not here. We passed out 25,000 John and Romans. We were organized. We had everything laid out. We knew exactly what we were going to do. Of course, we had never done it before, and so we didn't know 100% how it was going to go. But we put a lot of work and a lot of effort and a lot of time and a lot of, uh, a, a lot of exercise into it, just going from house to house to house, passing out all of these flyers. And boy, the first day came... And uh, we, had some, we had some get acquainted meetings like we just did uh, with the other church there in Palmyra. And uh, boy, I, said, I, and I, I think I told Brian, I told my, bro, uh, my, my, my wife, I said, man, if 0.1% of those people that we passed out the flyers come, this place is going to be packed. If 0.1%, that's 25,000 flyers we put out. You know how many people came the first night? Zero. You know how many people came the second night? Zero. You know how many people came the entire week? Zero. Nobody came. And we had people from other churches that came in and were a part of it, but nobody came from the community. And I'm sitting there thinking, how, we did all this work. How, did, how do you pass out 25,000 flyers and not one person is like, hmm, maybe I'll go try this place out. But you know what happened? I realized that it's not about organizational ability. It's not about all the stuff that we can do. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not saying that we didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit when we were starting. We, we had prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. But God needed to teach me a lesson. It's not just about organization. You know what would have happened? If, if 50 people would have come that first night and our first service would have been 100 people and we'd have taken off and just shot up from there, then I would have started thinking, all we got to do is throw more work at it, put more effort into it, put more organization we're just not doing enough organizational work. No, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Because you know what that made me do? God, where's all the people? And I think maybe the first Sunday we had a family or two that came in, and the next Sunday a family or two that came in, and then those people left, and another one came. And it's just the way, and, and slowly but surely we've grown to what God's allowed us to have today. But it's not about organizational ability. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit and about Him doing that work. Turn over to John chapter 3. 
See, a living, breathing body requires the life of the Holy Spirit. The only way to organize an organism is to dissect it, and that kills it. And that's what happens, I think, so often in a, in a lot of even good churches. And that's one of the things I'm afraid of happening here. We don't want to organize the Holy Spirit right out of all the service. Organize the Holy Spirit right out of the ministry. Holy Spirit, like wind, blows where he wants. That's what he says in John chapter 3 and verse number 8. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound. Thou canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that's born of the Spirit. You can't you can only you can only uh, you you can only follow his promptings. That's what the Holy Spirit. You you can feel the wind. You can't see it. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going to. You you can feel the effects of it. That's exactly what the Bible says. The Holy Spirit works like. Don't know where he's going or what he's doing. We can feel the effects of the Holy Spirit, and we can have the power of the Holy Spirit, and we have to be so sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I believe that you can organize the Holy Spirit right out of a service, and that's something that we have to be so careful about. I believe you can organize the Holy Spirit right out of your ministry that you're involved in. I believe you can organize the Holy Spirit right out of your family, because everything has to be this way, and if it's not this way, then, hey, let the Holy Spirit lead. Let him work. Let him guide you in your life. Let him guide you in your family. Let him guide you in your ministry. It was A.W. Tozer that said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. He said, if the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. I, I, I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly what would happen in most of our churches today. Nobody would even know that the Holy Spirit's not there. What a sad thing that that would be if that happens here in this place. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. It's just the next chapter over from, from where we're at. But I, I want to be filled with all the fullness of God. Many, many people mistake the working of the Holy Spirit. See, when you get saved, when you, when you, as we sang about this morning, show up at the foot of the cross and realize that that's where your burdens are, are lifted, realize that that's where God takes care of all of your sin, when you meet Jesus Christ at the cross, and your sins are covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. You're saved. The Holy Spirit comes and indwells your, your life. He lives inside you, convicting you of sin. That's one of the things that the Holy Spirit does for us. He convicts us of sin. He comforts. He, he works on your prayers. That's what the Holy Spirit does for somebody who's saved. The, the only thing that the Holy Spirit does in the life of somebody who's not saved is to convict them of their sin and of Jesus Christ. You're not going to find the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You're not going to feel his leading. You're not going to know, you know, you're not going to feel his promptings in your life to do this or that. You don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you if you're not saved. But as Christians, we can grieve the Spirit. We can quench the Spirit. We can go through our lives without the power and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And that's where we need to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29 says this. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the unifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind one to another, tender one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. What grieves the Holy Spirit? These things, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking. Bitterness is, is unresolved hurt. 
somebody hurts you and, and, and did you wrong. It may be real, it may be imaginary, but you perceive that somebody has done you wrong. Bitterness then turns into wrath. That word wrath has the idea of heat, something burning, uh, a, a sort of a slow burn. The best illustration I can think of maybe would be some oily cloths that, that uh, when they get you know, uh, in an attic or a closet, they start to smolder with the, the heat that's building up. What's the difference between wrath and anger? Wrath, uh, wrath is that slow burn, but anger is when somebody opens that door and just gives oxygen to that thing, and it just, it just, it just burns uncontrollably. It bursts into a flame, and you say, well, well I lost my temper. I think you found it. <laughs> I think you found it. You say, you know, well, the person say, when, a, when a person says, I lost my temper, what they're really saying is it's not my fault. It wasn't really me, right? I lost it. No, what's happening is that you're showing what's already in your heart. And what's in the heart is coming out. Uh, uh, in those moments, the Holy Spirit has not forsaken you. You have him in you to equip you and to help you and to get you through those things to help you in those moments when you feel prone to bitterness or wrath or anger or evil speaking or any number of other things that comes up in our lives. I need all the power that the Holy Spirit can give me. I want all the power that the Holy Spirit can give me. I don't want to be a powerless Christian. So I need to be more concerned with the Holy Spirit's promptings than with organizational ability. Number three, just a page or so over back in Ephesians chapter three, more concerned with adherence Scripture than relevance to society. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 21 says, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. See, a, a man may be relevant and not right. God's word is always right. It's always relevant. We have to depend on the sufficiency of Scripture to guide us and to lead us and to guard us. You ought to read more Scripture than you do fiction. Or biographies. You ought to read more scripture than you than you watch TV. Think about how much TV you watched this week and how much you read your Bible this week. For most people, it's probably hours and hours and hours that you sit and watch TV. Even if it's just a baseball game or a football game or something like that, before you know it, hours have passed and you're still sitting there. How much have you read your, your Bible this week compared to how much TV you watched? Your sufficiency is not scripture. We ought to follow eternal truth and not current trends. See, building a, a strong church and a strong family doesn't take a long time. It takes a lifetime. It's something that we're constantly, continually working at and asking God's help for. And there's no God does it, but you have to give him something to bless. See, there's, there's a reason that we don't rock this place out on Sunday morning. We don't, we don't sing the music that we do only because it's my preference and I like it. We sing it. We, we sing the music we do because it's pleasing to God and it follows Scripture. And, 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 and the hymns in particular have so much doctrine in them and so much that can be a help to us in growing in our relationship with Jesus Christ. When you look in the Bible at all the principles of music, one of them is that we're not to mirror the world. And how much of modern Christian music mirrors nothing but the world? I play basketball on, on Thursday mornings. 5.30 in the morning, so there's nobody else out there, uh, but, but I play at a church. I won't even tell you what church it is. They have a gymnasium that they've opened to the public, and so a group of guys gets together and plays, and they, and they have a little, little workout room, a little track, people walk and stuff like that, but they play this, this, this contemporary Christian music, 
And, and, and most of the time when you're playing, you can't really hear it. It's not that loud. But in between games, you can hear some of the music. And I literally have to sit there and think, are they playing rock music or rap music? Or are they playing supposedly Christian music? Right? Because you, you literally have to stop and, and, and try to listen to hear if Jesus is in there or something. Because it sounds so similar to the world. And the same thing is true with the people playing the music. They look exactly. In fact, a lot of times they're trying to outworld the world. So that they can prove to the world that they're just like them. No, we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be separated from the world. Why would I want to be exactly like them? What am I offering them if I'm not offering them something different? That's what, that's what God tells There's no question when you're singing, Jesus is the sweetest name I know, that we're different from the world. No, there's no doubt when you're singing the old rugged cross that we're different from the world. No question when you're singing, how great thou art. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14 says, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar, zealous of good works. Peculiar means different. Doesn't mean weird. You don't have to be weird to be a Christian. But you're going to look different to the world. You ought to look peculiar. There ought to be something about you that people notice that says, this guy is not of this world. He's in it, but he's not of it. And there's a big difference. We ought to be different. We ought to be separate. The world ought to notice that there's something different about us. As Christians, we're called to be different from the world, not to emulate the world for the sake of relevance. Well, think about how many more people we can get in if we would just do some more of this kind of stuff. Look at how big those crowds are. And I hate to say this, but do you realize how many people that are in those crowds have no desire to be there for the Christian aspect of it? They want the free music. They want, give me what I can get out of it. I want to feel like I've done something by going to church today. And they leave and there's nothing different about them. And most of them are probably not even saved. And I know that's a harsh thing to say, but you can't preach the gospel the way the Bible gives the gospel if you're trying to be like the world. The world has nothing to do with Christ. They're trying to destroy the name of Jesus Christ. They would like nothing more than to destroy Christianity and wipe it off the face of the earth. Why would I want to be as close to their side as I possibly can? Why would I want to be as much like them as I possibly can be? They don't like me. They don't like what I stand for. They don't like the word of God that I read. They don't like the Jesus that I preach. Why would I want to be like them? Be different. Let that difference and let the Holy Spirit working through you be what they see. Let that be the testimony. Let that be what helps lead them to Jesus Christ. We've got to be different. We've got to be separate from the world if we expect to reach this world for Jesus Christ. There's nothing wrong with trying to stay relevant. But we have to have relevance without compromise. And so many people are compromising for the sake of relevance. I read a quote this week that said this. What if, what if we take away uh, the cool music and the cushioned chairs? What if the screens are gone and the stage is no longer decorated? What if the air conditioning is off and the comforts are removed? Would his words still be enough for his people to come together? That's a good question. What if you had to be here and there was no conditioned room? If you had to sit on the floor on a hard bench, would you keep coming? Is God's word enough? Or are you relying on, wow, this is a nice building. This is a great, comfortable place to sit. This is, you know, whatever. Is God's word enough? See, the Bible is still the Bible, and it doesn't matter what society says or does. They are not our standard. 
It's not society that we're going to answer to someday. It's Jesus Christ, and the word of God ought to be our standard. Number four, back in Ephesians chapter three, we ought to be more concerned with bringing individuals to Christ than building a big program. We ought to be concerned, more concerned with bringing individuals to Christ than building a big program. Ephesians chapter three and verse 20 says, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. People get so enamored with size. They get so impressed by numbers. Zechariah, if you want to turn over there, I'll give you the rest of the service to find it. Zechariah chapter 4, verse number 9, the Bible says this, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you, for who hath despised the day of small things? Satan knows how to get a crowd, too, right? Some of the largest, uh, I, I, I don't even remember what it was. It was, a, it was a football game of some sort. Or, oh, you know what? No, it was one of the, it was one of the World Series games. I think they said there was something like 75,000 people in the stadium. I, I could be wrong. I don't even remember what, what it was. It was some game. 75,000 people. It has nothing to do with them worshiping God, right? The devil knows how to get a crowd, right? Some of the biggest mega churches that are preaching, you, you know, heresy and everything else are some of the largest places. Thousands and thousands of people getting together. Does not mean that God's in it. Forget the mega mentality. The measure of a church is not the size of the crowd, but how big the Christ is in the people in the crowd. That's what matters. Remember that Philip, the story of Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip was in a large revival in Samaria, and God called him away from that revival to go out to the backside of a desert and lead the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. One person. One person. But that opened the door to the gospel in Africa. And we'll see this church grow one person at a time, one soul at a time, one family at a time. I'd rather God grow this church slowly than build it quickly on our own power or, 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 or with gimmicks or with any of these other things that people do to try to draw a crowd and attract people in here. I want God to be the one that builds it. Number five, back in Ephesians chapter three. Be more concerned with guiding your family than gaining a following. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. I, I have been for a long time, and I'm becoming more and more convinced that social media has ruined our society. And, and, and actually, it's, it's pretty funny because now even, even some of these Democratic-run cities are, are suing Facebook for, you know, these algorithms that they put out there that are just keeping our kids addicted to these social media apps and everything else. Uh, it's pretty funny that even, even, even those who have no concern about Christ or whatever uh, whatsoever are, 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 are noticing the, the, uh, the detriment that social media is to our society. People today are so much more concerned about how many followers they have on Instagram or how many followers they have on Facebook or how people perceive them on those social media sites than they are about making sure their children grow up for God. If you gave them a choice, you can have a million followers on Facebook or you can have a family that grows up and serves God, most people would choose a million followers on Facebook. That's a sad thing. It's a sad state that we're in today, but most people would choose that. They live in this fantasy world of social media. 
They're, not, they're, they're more concerned with how many likes they have on a post than they are about making sure God likes what they're doing in their lives and in their homes and in their families. Who cares how many followers you have or how big your network is if you fail to minister to your first priority, your family. The institution of the family was there before government was instituted. It was there before the church was instituted. Your family is important. Your family is your first priority. Every one of us is going to stand before God for what we did in our own home. And by the way, the husbands are the ones that are going to, be answer, that are going to answer to God for how they led the home. The wives are going to answer to God for how they followed their husbands as he led the home. That's what we're going to stand before God and answer for someday. How are you handling that responsibility? It's a tremendous responsibility. Refuse. We ought to refuse to give more energy to virtual connections than to real relationships. It's, it's, it's amazing to me when you, when, you, when you go out in public and you'll see a family sitting at a table uh, at a restaurant and all five or six of them are buried in their phones, texting each other across the table. Right? It's amazing to me. We're, we're so much more reliant on virtual relationships than we are with real relationships, and even more importantly, our relationship with God. You want to do social media? Do social media. But it ought to be something that takes a far, far back burner to your family and to your connection to them. Be more concerned with guiding your family than gaining a following. Number six, be more concerned with worship than work. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14, for this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the best work for God grows out of worship. The more you learn to love and adore Christ, the more you learn to enjoy Him and praise Him and, 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 and just be in awe of who He is, the more your work for Him is naturally going to flow out of that. You've probably had somebody like that in your life that you really looked up to, somebody that you really cared about, somebody that you really were appreciative of for whatever reason, and many times it's a mentor, somebody who really invested in your life. You, you, the, the, the closer you grow in that relationship, the more you want to do for them. It, it, a lot of times it even works that way with our parents, right? Uh, when you're growing up, they don't mean all that much to you because they're your boss, they're the ones that are telling you what to do, but as you grow up and you look back and you realize how much they actually sacrificed and how much they actually did and how much they actually cared about you, the more you want to do things for them later on. And, so, and it works the same way. When you really get in awe of who God is, you can't help but want to live for him. You cannot help but want to work for him. You cannot help but want to, to serve him in any way that you can. So you cannot genuinely love and adore someone without serving them. It works that way in a relationship in a home. It works that way in a marriage. It works that way with, with, with parents and children. You really adore somebody, you're going, to, you're going to want to work for them. You're going to want to do things for them. You're going to want to serve them. And it's the same with our adoration of God. The more you love him, the more you just stand in awe of who he is, the more you glimpse his holiness, the more you're going to want to, to live for him and serve him. And I've said it so often, I think that's, one of, our, I think that's one, of the, one of the huge detriments in Christianity today is we have such a, such a low view of God, right? I've seen t-shirts, Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is not your homeboy. He is, an, he is a God that sits on a... On a some, some genie up in the clouds. 
And that's and, and sadly, I mean that's that's what Christianity is characterizing God as today. But when you start lowering that standard in the church, then that's exactly what happens. God's just my boy that, we're, that I'm going to meet on Sunday. You know, and, and even, you maybe, you maybe you remember this because it was popular, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. You know, a little quote with a little dash that God said it, right? Meet me at my house this Sunday. You know, meet me at the big house on Sunday. God, God is not some, some, some friend of yours that just wants to hang out. God is, he's an awesome God, and I mean that in, in, in the highest respect that I can give that word. And, when, and, and one day we're going to bow before him, and we're not just going to, to stroll past his throne and tip our hats to him on our way to our mansion. We're going to be so in awe of the majesty of God that we're not going to want to do anything else but kneel before his throne and worship him and sing holy, holy, holy and take any crowns that we're able to earn and put them at his feet. And if we can learn that now, if we can really see God for who he is and we can really see ourselves for who we are in relation to God's holiness, it would change everything about us. We would have a humility that would make us want to serve God with everything that we have. We'd have a, we'd have a love for Him that would make us want to tell everybody about what He's done for us. But when you start trying to bring God down to your level, that's when you lose all sense of reverence. Well, we can show up to church in shorts and flip-flops and, and, and rock the place out and, and you know... Uh, do all these other things that's going on in our churches today. We've lost the reverence for God. We have reverence for a courtroom and a judge, right? How many people would show up, even your murderers, your, your mass murderers that show up to court in a suit and tie because of the place that they're at? They have no respect for that place, but they have respect for the position of the judge. They'll do it in a courtroom. They'll, they'll, they'll do it in a business office. And yet Sunday's the day to chill out and hang out with God. Oh, the reverence is, is just, it, it ought to be there. We ought to be more concerned with worship than work. In his presence, the work is clear. And out of the overflow of your walk with him, others are going to come to know Jesus Christ because of that. But let me give you the last one. Turn over to Deuteronomy 32, if you will. Number seven is this. Be more concerned with goodness than greatness. I know it kind of sounds exactly the opposite of what I've just been saying. Oh, if, if good is getting away in the way of the best, then we should get rid of the good for the best, right? I don't mean exactly that when I say be more concerned with goodness than greatness. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16 says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. There's only one capital O, that's truly great, and that's our God. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 3 says, Because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. And when I say more concerned with goodness than greatness, what I'm saying is our aim should not be to build a name for ourselves, but to grow in our likeness to Jesus Christ. Be more concerned with being good and being right and being holy then you are concerned with being great. Um, you ask the majority of people today what they, what they want. I'd like to be famous. I want everybody to know my name. I want to see my name in lights. I want to make it big someday, right? The athletes, the young athletes. I want to make it on the big stage. I want people to, I want my name to be a household name, right? That's, that's worrying about greatness. 
and so many things that have to go by the wayside when it comes to your relationship with God in order to, to reach that level of greatness. Oh, I'd rather be good. I'd rather be righteous. I'd rather be holy than great. Spurgeon wrote in a book called The Soul Winner, in our beginnings we are too fine to be fit, too great to be good. And boy, what a, what a, what a concept, what an idea. We ought, to be, we ought to be seeking to be holy. And, and God, who really is great, will make us usable. It's, it's not until we realize that we're nothing that God can use us. You walk around saying, I don't know how God can't use this. Look at me. That's, that's the person that God will never be able to use. But you take somebody, and, and I'm not saying, you know, uh, true humility is, is, is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's what humility is. And so many people walk around with this false humility. There's no way that God could ever use me. I'm just a, you know, and, and, and they're proud of their humility. What happens a lot of times. No, but true humility is, I'm not thinking about myself. I'm thinking about God and God through me. I'm thinking about others. I'm thinking about how God, uh, what, what I can do for God. That's what true goodness is all about. God will use you if you're concerned more with being holy and being righteous before him than you are with being concerned about being great. Some of the greatest people that we read about and write about now are people who, who are so unassuming in their lifetimes. People didn't even, most people didn't even know that they existed. Somebody found out about them at the end of their life or after they were already dead and they wrote books about them and that's, what, that's, that's why they're famous now. <coughs> but if we're concerned with trying to make ourselves great, we'll never be used by God. I have no doubt that he has a lot more to teach me. I have a lot more to learn. We all have a lot more to learn. It's a lifelong pursuit of trying to grow in our relationship with Christ. And you can read the Bible through one, one year or, or, or every couple years and get a lot of great things out of it and then go back and read the Bible again and say, how did I never see this before? Because it's a living organism and it changes according to the stage of life that we're in, according to what we're struggling with, according to what we need help with. Because it's a living book. And this is a living thing. This is a, this is a living organism that's been birthed by Jesus Christ himself. He loved the church so much that he gave his life for it. This is something that's worth giving our life for, too. I want to be where God wants me to be. How about you this morning? I know I told you it was going to be a shotgun message. It's all over the place. And if, if you were to sit down and try to, to uh, you know, to, to critique this in, the, in the, the way that a sermon ought to be, this is probably one of the lowest ones on the list because it's just everywhere. But there's, but, but there's so much that we can learn. And so much, it's just from this passage here in Ephesians chapter 3. So much, that, so much that we can take from it that will help us in our Christian life. And even if you only grab onto one of those things, then, then it will be a help to you. But take them, study through them this week, meditate on those things. Allow the, the Lord to use it. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart about these things. God wants to use you. And, it, and it's only going to happen when we get more and more and more serious about living for him. Less and less and less caring about the things of this world. Less and less and less about having popularity or having any of these other things. They don't matter. They count for nothing. Because you know what? When, when they come along and, and delete Facebook the same way. What was the, what was the one before Facebook that everybody was all into? MySpace. 
MySpace, I never had a MySpace. That's probably why I don't even remember. But everybody had it. It's gone. There's nothing. You know? And everybody that was the popular people on MySpace, what did it count for? Nothing. Facebook is going to be gone someday. Instagram's going to be gone someday. That's the only two I know. All the rest of them are going to be gone someday too. They're not going to count for anything when you stand before God. It's not going to count for anything when you get to the end of your life. Oh, I was popular on Facebook. Is that what you want in your tombstone? What does it count for? The only thing that's going to matter is what you've done for Jesus Christ with your life. And I don't want you to get to the end of your life and say, man, I wish I'd done more for him and less for all of these other things. Get it now. Let God speak to you now. Have the power of the Holy Spirit on your life now. God will use you in a great way. God can use us to reach this community with the gospel. And what greater thing is there than doing that? Won't you let God use you? Won't you let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart this morning? Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you so much for your goodness to us. The opportunity to be in your house this morning. God, I pray that you just use these simple, random thoughts in our lives this morning. And God, that you might move us to be more like you. That you might move us to be holy and righteous and godly before you. And God, I pray that you would just continue to speak to our hearts through this message. And we'll thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand at your seats with your heads bowed and your eyes.